Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another incredible guest. He's a City University of New York School of Law graduate and works as a Reproductive Justice Federal Fellow at If, When, How. He has held past positions as a fall legal intern at A Better Balance, and prior to law school, he spent seven years at On Deck Capital as a senior account manager. Absolutely ecstatic to have him on the podcast today, Mr. Hersha Venkataraman. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? I'm doing well, Nate, and even better that you pronounced my last name perfectly. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I got a little nervous there. But <laughs> before we get started, Hersha, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, I just graduated from CUNY Law. Uh, class of 2023. I just passed the bar exam and I'm psyched that I won't ever have to take another bar exam. (laughs) So I am a reproductive justice federal fellow at If, When, How. I started in September and it's going to be a one-year fellowship. I'm uh, really excited. I love the lawyers I work with. Um, I can't even believe sometimes that I'm here right now because of just how long my career has been before law school and how scary it is sometimes to pivot but you know here i am just living the dream so first i just wanted to congratulate you on passing the bar i know that's an extremely (laughs) big achievement i haven't took the bar yet i haven't even went to law school so i don't know anything about it i hope to know about it one day but i just want to say first that your career so far very courageous pivoting like the way you have is honestly it's a huge risk I've listened to a lot of other people talk about like pivoting in industries, but going from, I mean, I would assume you're doing quite well for yourself based on the sort of achievements that you had at On Deck Capital, but then deciding to just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to law school. You are like the model guy for this podcast. I swear on my life, (laughs) you really, really are. So usually we start off, we talk about where the person went to college, then, you know, oh, you know, they majored in something weird. So like, oh, why'd you go to law school? But this is completely different now. And (laughs) I was so excited for this episode. And that was why when I saw your page on LinkedIn, I was like, oh, my God, like I found him. This is this is the the guy who I needed today. So you graduated from Rutgers, you had a BA in economics, and then you went to be a financial analyst. Now, Obviously, you went on to do a couple other things. You ended up at On Deck Capital. Can you talk about those experiences just as a whole? Yeah, yeah. So let's even just start from after I graduated Rutgers. Um, at the time, the job market was still sort of reeling in from 2008 from the financial crisis. And uh, you know that just made it so much more difficult to get jobs, particularly in the financial sector. I I got sort of lucky. So my <laughs> the end of college was kind of weird for me only because I was finishing my last semester while also working as a bank teller for what was known as Wachovia at the time and is now Wells Fargo. And uh, not a place I would ever go back to. I'm glad that that was a very short stint for a semester, but it, it helped me cut my teeth in sales because you might know or not know that Wells Fargo has a reputation of pushing its tellers to aggressively sell its products. And uh, they've gotten under trouble with that. You might've seen Elizabeth Warren destroy John Stumpf during a Senate hearing and rightly so. But 
for not for nothing, I am thankful for all of my experiences. And that helped me get into a company called FXDD, where I had further experience in both customer service, but also direct sales. When I was selling our platform, our trading platform to customers who wanted to, who wanted to trade currencies. And, you know, it's a 24 hour market. It's very interesting. You talk to different clients around the world and you get an idea of the economy while you're at it. So I thought it was a fascinating job. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I was recruited by on deck to be a senior account manager. And so on deck capital was sort of cutting edge at the time because they catered to a customer base that was essentially non-bankable, quote unquote. You know, it, banks are very picky about who they lend money to. Typically, it depends on a credit score and almost nothing else. Or it has to be extensive financial. So on deck was essentially an option for small business owners to be able to receive financing, albeit at a premium, but with minimal paperwork with generally soft credit pulls, you could have a lower than average score and still be able to get money. And, you know, it's the industry has its ups and downs. It's definitely an avenue I would recommend exploring if a bank is turning you away for no reason. And I learned a lot. I had some great teammates and I was there for seven years. And I, I felt great because I was able to really flex my sales muscles. I was thrown into trial by fire. And I think what I learned the most from my time at On Deck is that you have to be able to break bread with anybody. And, you know, we'll talk about more how that relates to being a lawyer, but I feel like sales exists within everything. In every profession, you have to sell something and you have to know how to sell yourself above all else. You know, you can sell a product that you believe in, I feel, but you have to be able to sell yourself because if you don't believe what you're saying, no one's gonna, no one's gonna believe who you are. No one's gonna believe, uh, you know, the brand, so to speak, of who you are. You, you can't be somebody else. And on deck really taught me how to embrace that. So at my heart, I'm still a salesman, even though I call myself a lawyer now. I will always and forever be a salesman. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. The the audience can't see. I'm smiling very wide right now. Because I literally wrote down as one of the bullet points I wanted to talk about was selling yourself. Because I know it's a very, very big things in sales. Can you kind of talk about that? Kind of talk about the importance of selling yourself, what kind of goes into it, the sort of skills you have to have for that? Yeah, absolutely. So you, first and foremost, I think to sell yourself, you have to know what you're selling. You have to know who you are. And I think what I've seen some people do, and, and I include myself in this a little earlier on in my sales career, is they try to portray themselves in a way that really isn't genuine to who they are. Like some people will look at another salesman and say, you know what, this is working for that person. They are super aggressive. I don't know if you've seen the movie Boiler Room, but some people will try to emulate that style of just aggressive, in-your-face sales. And I've seen I've seen it work for some people on the sales floor and that's totally fine. And I think that what worked for me wasn't always that method. For me, it, it took me a couple of years to really finesse, you know, what I wanted to be and how I wanted to be perceived. But I made myself more of a listener. And I think by being able to listen, by being able to acknowledge that 
people really just want to hear themselves talk and they want a friendly ear to hear their problems, hear what they're looking for. As a salesman, the more you listen, the more you understand, the more you can empathize with your client, the more you can actually fit their needs with the right product instead of maybe like just a product that might get you the highest commission at that particular time. Because when you're selling yourself, you're selling you're selling a confidant, you're selling a an advisor, you're selling maybe even a friend sometimes. You're not always going to be friends with your clients. But I think when you're selling yourself, you have to make yourself basically everything to your client because you want them to come back to you. And if you sell yourself disingenuinely, you're not going to get them back. I think ultimately people see through that. I think they might buy from you at that time because maybe it's out of desperation or maybe that short-term tactic might've worked. But I think the people that best sell themselves and in turn create the best relationships are the ones that understand who they are when they walk into a sale and understand the credibility of who they are, the credibility of their product. I think that all kind of goes together. Yeah. I think you just said some absolutely amazing things. I mean, this is the lawyers in the making podcast, but we're we're getting a masterclass in sales right now as well. I'm <laughs> loving it. I'll be completely honest. I mean, just the the fact, the importance of being genuine, being a genuine person, being yourself at that. And you talked about the movie, and people try to emulate that, but it's so much, even it's so much easier, even just to kind of be your own person and be approachable. Um, I know uh, I, I'm currently reading. Um, oh my God, I forgot the name. The Dale Carnegie book. I know. I know you know what I'm talking. Ah, uh, yeah, of um, course. But you know, they always say have a smile. Uh, you know, be approachable. Don't complain. All that stuff. Um, so I, a lot of that in there. Now, let's let's talk about the, the pivot because I'm so interested. What happened? What 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 was the 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 enlightening moment of like I want to be a lawyer now? <laughs> you know, I I think as I as I really reflect on it, it's probably more than just one moment. So even during undergrad, I had sort of entertained the idea of being a lawyer, not for any really altruistic purpose or even just for intellectual stimulation. It's just because I enjoyed arguing. And I was like, well, lawyers argue. Maybe this is something that I can do full time. And then I sort of realized as I was doing some very cursory LSAT studying and I took some sort of a law and economics class at school, which I eventually dropped out of, I, I said to myself, you know what? I don't really like to read that much. This isn't for me. And I almost immediately as it came into my head, threw it out the door. I was like, this is just not going to be a career path that goes down. But then fast forward years later, I'm at On Deck. I've been at On Deck for, you know, at this point, maybe five years. And so the political climate in the United States started to change a bit. And right around the 2016 election, you started to see really wide crevices forming between political parties, between coalitions, between people, really. And I think 2016 or maybe even 2015, were, it was just a huge year where people discovered where they stood on the political spectrum, what they believed in, maybe even what they wanted to fight for. And I saw just a lot more political involvement. And I saw myself getting more involved, too. 
I started phone banking more. I became a field lead for a local assembly person. I I did a lot more, I think, than I ever had before. And I, I said to myself, you know, I can do some good work as a volunteer, but I wonder how I can translate this professionally. What can I do to use my soft skills as a salesman and also maybe work my mind in a way that I haven't been doing before? You know, you, when you combine how I felt about the political climate, how I wanted to use my skills and maybe how I felt like I wasn't able to use those skills at my current job, all of that together was just a, a, a huge signal to me that I needed to change something because I could have stayed it on deck and probably done fine. I probably could have even just stayed there until, you know, this day. I still know guys over there. I love those guys and they're fantastic salesmen and I, I wish them all the best. And a lot of those guys stayed there because it's hard to be secure at a job, no matter what, you know, it's, it's never perfect. You don't know if you're disposable or not, but for me, I felt disposable. I felt like really they could just hire somebody else to do my job. There had been layoffs there. The company was going through some growing pains and just that combined with some certain policy measures in there, it just didn't really work out for them to hold on to such a huge staff. And so thankfully I survived those layoffs and I'm happy to say that this decision was voluntary, but either way, even if I didn't, even if, you know, I were laid off, I think it would have been a blessing. Because in 2019, when I did ultimately exit, I, I felt good about the decision I made. And I don't know if I would have felt as good had the timing not worked out. But when I think about what I wasn't getting out of my current job, what I wanted to do with my life, and maybe even the legacy I would want to set for my future children, I didn't have kids at that time. I was like, I, I really need to deeply explore this route. And so that all sort of brought me to you know, LSAT studying and eventually law school. And here I am now. Once again, so commendable. I love the no regrets attitude. I love the risk taking. Like, I, I think this is important for people to hear because I think at a lot of points, especially in my own life, you know, even even starting this podcast, I felt was a really big risk. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but, you know, once you once you kind of find the motivation, kind of find the passion obviously you, you were activated in a sort of political way in order to, you know to reach this goal of law school uh, and and I just I love that attitude I really really do I I find it so so kind of just like I don't I don't know I can't put words to it right now but I find it very <laughs> very nice to hear from someone else that you know it's it's good to take risks it's good you know to move on from things and, and pivot in this sort of way now, I appreciate that. No problem. Now we have to talk about, I, I always say this is traumatic for some people, traumatic, maybe not so traumatic. I know you have a lot of, a lot of experience, so maybe, what, but the first year of law school, how was that for you? Can you describe it? Uh, well, if you've spoken to lawyers before, you might find this like cliche or predictable, but it's really hard. <laughs> and it's it's hard in the way that for me it was just a totally new profession it's totally new world i i i i had in my head that it was going to be a lot of reading a lot of studying a lot of late nights a lot of writing a lot of exposure to issues that i just wasn't familiar with and all of that is true but even with those expectations you, you just 
you're not really ready for it unless you've worked in the legal field, maybe. And even then, it's still, you're not doing that exact work because your first year of law school is sort of a weed out year. And that's everywhere. You'll you'll hear from a lot of lawyers and even just law students. It doesn't really matter where you go to law school, like unless your law school is just absolutely not up to the standard level of education, you're going to pretty much learn the same curriculum wherever you are. You're going to learn crim law. You're going to learn contract law. You're, you might learn constitutional law in your first year. You're going to learn a lot of the same stuff across the board. And they're flooding you with really standard and you know important doctrine that all lawyers have to know, especially for the bar. But you know, for me, especially as someone who came from a profession where you didn't have to read almost anything, you just had to rely on your ability to create relationships and, you know, make sales and you're measured by units, you're measured by a quota. That is not what being a law student is. I had to learn how to outline. I had to learn how to make a to-do list. I mean, I had done it before, but not to the extent that I was doing it here. It seems really easy in theory, and I hope more people are doing that than I was back then. But for me, it was I, I really had to be organized. I had to learn a lot. I had, you know, a lot of notebooks and folders, and I was like, okay, I have to remember like what I have to do today and make sure that I get way ahead of it because if I'm even one lecture behind, I think that'll set me back in in an absolutely horrible way. But I will say this. I think my first year of law school would have been way worse if I had gone to law school right after undergrad. And I'm speaking for myself personally, because I don't think it's the same for everybody. I think that when I was an undergrad, I coasted. Admittedly, I was not a good student. I, was, I wasn't an awful student, but I, I really just rely on my ability to coast. I can memorize certain things pretty well. I have a visual memory. So sometimes you know, if I have to memorize a concept, I'll just remember, oh, you know, this professor wrote this on the board or like something just stood out to me that I was able to just pick up in my textbook. And I can use those for, you know, when I'm on, when I'm doing an exam, like, you know, I wasn't really going for the best grade necessarily in college. I was just trying to make sure I was doing at least as well enough as I needed to get through the class, my upper level economics classes, especially. And when I came to law school, though, I said to myself, I'm not going that route. I am learning all of this stuff. I'm taking notes in class. I am briefing all of my cases. And in case you don't know what case briefing is, it's reading through cases and taking very particular notes about what the issue is, what the facts are, what the, uh, the rule out is, what the analysis is, what the conclusion is, like what the dissent is, all of that stuff. And so, you know, I, I became a much more diligent student and 1L, I think, was a lot better for that. But, you know, don't get it twisted. It was still hard. It was a lot of 2 a.m. nights. So I have uh, just go back a little bit. My my question is, was there anything in particular that made you go to CUNY? And I know you said a lot of people told you it didn't really matter at certain points. Was there any like, I know it's like, is it the number one public interest in New York State? Is that true? Did I get that right? Oh, look at that. It um, is. It, it, so it's, it's considered to be the number one public interest law school in the nation. 
Oh, you know, I've seen rankings before. I forget exactly in which publication that it's like either one or two up neck and neck with Yale in terms of public interest. It's just, it's a very specialized school. So that is actually the reason why I wanted to go. And a close second reason was just that I live in Long Island City and it's actually really close to where I live. So I was like, this is just a great one-two punch here. It's going to help me learn the law as I would like to learn it. And also I don't have to be far away. So that'll make my life a little easier when I have to figure out studying or if I really want to stay in the library late at night, I can just come home whenever. And, and you know, it's not going to be a horrible commute for me, but CUNY really stood out to me as I did my research there because I saw that they have a really diverse class of folks and people really come from all walks of life. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case in many other universities because I think one of CUNY's best selling points is that it doesn't cost much to go there. And there's a lot of folks that had to work while they were in school, even full-time students. And there were a lot of students that took on debt, a lot of immigrant students, a lot of students of color, a lot of first-generation law students, a lot of first-generation grad students or even college graduates at all. And so I thought, what better way to learn about the way the law maybe should be practiced than learning about how it may have affected the students that are attending that school? You know, law school is a very privileged institution. You go to any high-level law school, you are probably going to be surrounded by people who maybe have come from money, people who could probably afford those exorbitant fees, um, you know, really highly credentialed folks too. But I think that CUNY in a lot of ways caters to working class folks. It caters to folks who may, may even not have entertained law school otherwise. But yeah, CUNY attracted me for just a lot of those reasons. And I, I'm really happy that I went there. Now I have to ask, cause I, it's, it's, it's such a, it's not a strange episode, but it's, it's a special episode cause you have so much experience and I have to ask what it was like being a beginner again in a different field. Cause I know when you were on deck and you started as a salesman, you kind of had to figure out how to do sales, how to sell yourself. And you kind of mastered that craft. Can you talk about now mastering this craft being a beginner again? Uh, I wouldn't say that I've mastered it. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> I am still very much a newbie and I don't know if that feeling really goes away that easily. I, I know lawyers that I've been practicing for a little bit and they still feel very new to this thing. And, and I guess that's why they call it a practice, right? Again, not to be cliche, but it's just something that you're always working on. But maybe to answer your question a little bit more pointedly, I think that it was it was tough in certain ways because, again, I come from a field that is so unbelievably unrelated. There is just nothing that I did in my previous life as a small business loan salesman slash account manager that I was doing in law school. I learned how to read in a very particular way in law school. I didn't really read when I was at On Deck. I learned how to write in a persuasive way. I spoke a lot persuasively when I was a salesman, but I didn't necessarily rely on my writing quite as much because, you know, when you're selling over the phone or even in person, you have to be quick. You have to be able to rely on your wits and you have to do that as a lawyer too. But when you're learning the law, you're not really relying on it as much. You're 
trying to learn doctrine. You're trying to learn how to logically analyze a statute. So for me, it was a pretty big shift. It was almost an entirely, you know, accurate 180, uh, except for like certain extracurriculars I did. Like I did moot court and that helped me exercise my other skills. That at least felt more familiar to me because moot court is a sale. And just in case you're not familiar with what moot court is or anybody listening to this, moot court is supposed to simulate what it's like to perform an oral argument in front of the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, when you're arguing, you are being peppered with questions. So you have to have submitted a brief ahead of time with all of your points, all of your legal citations, and you have to defend it in front of a panel of judges. So that I felt a little bit more at home at, uh, but everything else, yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. I, I won't lie. It was it was pretty hard. It was definitely a bit more. I know in, in like entrepreneurial world, that's like a big thing. Like people will go from like one was well, so they'll do like technology, but then it's like, oh, I'm going to start doing agriculture and they kind of have to start learning back up again. And I'm always very interested in that stuff. I don't know why. I just I, I, I like I like all the flipping and flopping, you know, kind of you know, you, you get, you get used to something, you study something for a while. It's like, okay, I know it all. And it's like, okay, I want to learn something new. Um, but going into your second and third year of law school, you were, uh, at the Queens DA in the domestic violence bureau, and you worked as a legal intern for the advocates of justice. Can, can you talk about those experiences, but specifically, did you have any, and any other internships? I don't know if I covered it at all, but can you talk about a positive experience that you had where you're like, oh, this is something I'd want to do in the future and maybe a, a more negative experience where it's like, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah, yeah, totally. So when I think about, let's start with the Queens DA's office, right? So when I came into law school, I had an inkling that I was going to work within the criminal legal system. And I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot of defenders at this school. Maybe I should explore that. But then I I interviewed at the DA's office and I was thinking to myself, you know, I I have an offer and it's giving me an opportunity to work at an office that largely represents a South Asian population. And like my family's from India and in Queens, there's a lot of South Asian immigrants from India, Bangladesh, uh, Pakistan, there's, there's a lot. And I felt like, maybe this is a way for me to get an inside look at how the criminal legal system works, at least in Queens, and maybe give some South Asian complainants an opportunity to see somebody that looks like them and maybe find it a little bit easier to articulate what it is they're going through. Uh, maybe they would feel better with working with whichever prosecutor was working on the case that I was assigned to as well. And I thought it was valuable in a lot of ways. I mean, I even ended that internship with a mock suppression hearing, which introduced me to a taste of litigation. And I was like, you know, this is this is actually really cool. And this might be something that I want to do one day. And so there was a lot to take away from there. I will say maybe a downside of having worked there is that it, it sort of illuminated me to the kind of work I didn't want to do, because I also saw that prosecutors are very inundated with cases. They are buried in them. And on top of that, when you're starting as an ADA, you don't really have control. You are operating at the whims of, you know, your unit chief and ultimately the DA. So, you know, some people say they want to go into the DA's office and make changes right away. And 
you know, I, my advice to them is don't get your hopes up. You're going to be there for a while and you're going to be really grinding probably as a misdemeanor attorney for a while before you're able to maybe even go to a higher level case. But for, again, for what it's worth, I thought it was valuable and kind of showing me what, what I liked and maybe what I didn't like. And then at Advocates for Justice, I, re I really enjoyed my time there because at that place, I was able to use more of my moot court skills because they did a lot of appellate advocacy, which is appeals work. And they also did a lot of trials work too. So me and the other interns, we would be sitting in on depositions and client interviews, and we'd be writing uh, to help our supervising attorney put together appellate briefs. And I, you know what was really awesome was at the end of the internship, we had the opportunity to see our supervising attorneys argue in court in a case against the city where they were trying to slash the budget by like hundreds of millions of dollars. And it would have affected just a multitude of families who were depending on the budget for after-school programs, among other things. And I thought, wow, how many legal interns get the opportunity to, to watch this kind of thing? It's inspiring. And that's the kind of appellate litigation that I ultimately want to do one day. So I thought that was really cool. You know, small firm, it gives you a lot of advantages into seeing how an attorney works. And because it was so intimate, we could talk to our supervising attorney almost at any point and ask questions, get direct feedback. I, I'm forever thankful for my supervisor, Laura Barbieri. She doesn't work there anymore, but I, I think she is a shark of an attorney. And that's the kind of attorney I want to be like one day. And that's the kind of work I want to do. You know, that kind of research, um, you know, it's uh, it was all it was all about civil rights litigation. So they were doing employment discrimination. They were doing discrimination of, you know, kids and teachers in schools. There was disability discrimination. Like we were looking at state laws. We were looking at federal laws. Just, you know, we, we were getting we're running the gamut. And I thought that was awesome. And then, you know, moving on to my next internship. So for a little context as to why I worked at a better balance in October of 2021, my wife and I lost our daughter to stillbirth. And that was, uh, it was a huge blow for us. It was, it's, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my daughter and she still inspires my work. And I, I hope that I make her proud as a lawyer one day in the work that I try to do. And so part of the struggles that we had weren't even just restricted to the typical struggles that you go through when you lose a child. It's everything to do with paid leave, with accommodations, and just the fact that, you know, we're in New York, which has a paid leave policy, and some states don't even have a paid leave policy, or at least a good one. But even in New York, people who suffer stillbirths, they're not covered by this policy. So you can't actually get the paid leave that's given to folks who give birth to a live baby, um, you know, who have to take care of a sick loved one or who are afforded paid leave for, you know, a, a family member in military service, right? Like for some reason, they just glossed over it. And that infuriated me. And so I said to myself, I have to pivot again, you know, within law school and a better balance is a nonprofit that does some really excellent legislative advocacy, as well as litigation on behalf of folks who are just not being given proper treatment by employers. But largely what they focus on are paid leave issues, sick leave issues, and pregnancy accommodation. And, 
you know, I said to myself, I'm I, like, why are more bereaved fathers not in this? Why, why are they not doing as much maybe as lawyers could be? And I said, I want to do this. I want to carve out a path for myself. I want to really try to make a difference. And so for three months during my 3L year, I was able to work for a better balance. I was able to research policies uh, within those categories that I had named before, learn from my supervising attorneys. And it was a short internship, but I thought it was valuable. I thought it really sharpened my research skills. I think with a policy internship, you get a very particular kind of experience, but I was still able to put together some legal writing that I thought was valuable. I think maybe what it was missing that I that I now realize that I want to do is litigation, but that's okay because I still felt like I was doing the right thing and I was doing it for my daughter. And then, you know, that's all my internship experience. I think you were asking about my internship experience, right? You weren't asking about like, you know, after that. Yeah. I, I just want to say I'm, I'm, I'm devastated to hear that. Very sorry that that happened to you. You know, I don't, I, that's this, it's a terrible thing, but what's so commendable is that immediately, you know, right into action you know you you completely pivot your whole your whole internship track to then devote everything and all your energy to supporting people like yourself and others who have went through that kind of experience honestly amazing absolutely amazing i i really have to say it it, i hope it's inspiring for people out there because it really is inspiring to me something like that to happen in your life and immediately just call to action right in there um so now, now we could talk about your experience now as a Justice Federal Fellow at If, When, How. How did you end up there? Why'd you go there? You know. Uh, yeah, so what sort of led me here was uh, I had applied to a few places in the fall of my 3L year. Um, you know, I applied for the Attorney General's office. I didn't get the, uh, I didn't get the job there. I had applied to a couple of positions at Legal Aid, and I had made final round interviews over there as well. And I had interviewed for this fellowship. And the reason I even applied to this fellowship was I was thinking, again, along the lines of like, what can I do in my legal career that might honor my daughter and allow me to do some great work for the people who really need help? And you know, the issues that my wife and I had gone through after we lost our daughter, Thalia, you know, with regards to paid leave, sick leave, everything that follows a loss, I felt like that all falls under the umbrella of reproductive justice. And my fellowship tended to agree. And I figured, let me apply to a fellowship that specializes in reproductive justice. That way I can center my work on this particular subject matter. If one how happens to focus on abortion justice, which is not exactly the same, but as a parent, I also feel like you know, in some ways it's interconnected because, you know, we we wanted to have our child and we had that choice taken away from us. And in so many ways, abortion justice is about choice. And many parents are having their choices taken away from them. So to, you know, long story short, really, I felt like if one how was the best avenue for me to do good work, to do valuable work, to fight for people, especially now post Dobbs. I said to myself, this is the exact time that I want to be involved in this organization. And, you know, kind of like it a better balance. I'm an outlier. There's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of men in this profession, at least not a lot of men in this 
path of lawyering. And I feel like maybe there should be, right? And and I've justified this decision, not only just by the work that I do, but maybe hopefully I can create an influence for more guys like me to apply. And, you know, you can you can be a, a cis hetero guy and apply for a job like this and you can make a difference, even though it's it's not exactly the prototypical field for someone like me to go into, uh, because you know, for me, I, I don't know what it's like to have an abortion. I don't know what it's like to go through those kinds of pains and choices. But at the very least, if I believe in this cause, then I can fight for it as a legal professional. And I think that all of that put together was what made doing this so valuable for me. And it made my choice pretty easy. Uh, even before I had heard back from legal aid, I was like, you know, I think that this is the route that I want to take. And maybe if I want to explore the litigation route a little later on, I will. But right now I'm doing work related to to policy and how it how it affects reproductive justice and choice. And, and I feel really good about that. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point right at right there at the end. You felt good, you feel good about what you do every day. And I think that's really, really important for really anyone in the world existing even is that what you do every day uh you know you get a lot out of i also just wanted to go back you talked about the uh having a small department at um advocates for justice i just want to preach that as well i this this summer i was fortunate enough to work at um my uh county's district attorney's office suffolk county district attorney office and i picked the asset forfeitures bureau and like Mm -hmm. I, i i honestly picked it because like I, I lived in Smithtown and it's in Hop Hog. So it's like down, like it's literally a minute away. So I was like, oh, I got to pick this place. And it was me and another intern. I know like other bureaus, um, like the violent crimes had like 25 people in it. Um, but, you know, it was just me and uh, my good friend, Brendan, who was the other intern, shout out him. Um, and it was three other attorneys in the office and I literally had 24 seven at, well, not 24 seven, but when I was at work, I had access to these guys all the time, especially Joe McCarthy who works there. I hope he's listening. Um, <laughs> really shout at him. Like that guy would sit me down and just talk to me forever about the law, about law school, about how to do citations about, I know you talked about, um, you talk about Iraq. The, yep. <laughs> the writing, but he called me that too. Um, so it was you just, gotta know Iraq. Hell yeah. Absolutely. It got drilled in my head. Um, (laughs) So it was like an absolute blessing to have a small department like that because it really, really, it was so beneficial. And, you know, he would let me, I know at the, at that particular internship, when you're an undergraduate student, you're a little more restricted in what you could do because you don't know how to legal write. You don't know how to do like reading and stuff, but they really let me, let me loose a little bit. I got to do a little bit of writing, a little bit of reading. I was very fortunate that so always preach in the small departments. Um, mm-hmm. But switching gears a little bit, I know you know, you have a lot of experience. I was going to ask this when you were in law school, but I was like, no, nah, wait. Um, are there any books in particular that you've ever read before that you felt really helped you in your life? Yes, actually, there's one that I recently read that I've been telling a lot of people to read. So it's called Finding Ultra. And the author is Rich Roll. So this book to me is super inspiring. And I think maybe what drew me, what drew me to it initially is that I'm a distance runner. So 
I've run three marathons and I'd like to continue doing that well into my old age. I want to stay in shape. I want to do, you know, all kinds of stuff. I'd love to do an ultra marathon ASAP. Uh, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but like I, I, I'm going to work to get in shape for it. And, you know, I actually do an annual marathon for in honor of Thalia. And uh, I'm trying to make that an annual fundraiser. So, but to get to the book, uh, so Rich Roll, ironically, was a lawyer. And, you know, he he started his life sort of feeling out of place, like within the schools that he was going to, found that he was a great swimmer, worked really hard at it, got a scholarship to Stanford, but was also introduced to alcohol. And ultimately, alcohol became his downfall, destroyed relationships, had an effect on his career. Somehow he graduated from Cornell Law School. He talks about it in his book. And you know, he, he realized that he had a problem, a big alcohol problem, and it was noticeable to the people around him. And, you know, eventually he set himself straight, but then he was so out of shape in his 30s, you know, compare that to being an elite athlete back in, you know, his uh, his late teens, early 20s. And he's like, I couldn't even make it up the stairs. And at age 39, he decided to turn his life around, totally change his diet dive back into the athletic scene, do triathlons and marathons and such. And he's just like, I need bigger challenges because he's also the kind of guy that goes big or goes home. And I think there's something to be admired about that because a guy like that really goes all in for better or worse. I mean, he, he went really into alcohol, unfortunately, but I think he caught himself and thankfully rehabilitated himself. And now is one of the world's fittest men. He has done these amazing ultra races. He's done something called the Ultraman in Hawaii, which is just this ridiculous race. And, you know, Hawaii is known for being like the Mecca of Ironman. Only the elite, only the elite compete there. And so I have no misgivings about how I'm going to perform in an Ironman right now, if I could even do it. But I think what really inspired me is just the way that he turned his life around, the way that he stuck to his guns, the way that he did it at the age of 39. It's it's weird to say that I'm 35 now. I'm I am almost middle-aged. And that's scary <laughs> to me. But I think if he could do it, I believe I could do it. I am I am so inspired by the way he turned his life around totally. And I know people who go through injuries now who suffer from stress who are just tired all the time and who are grinding and i I feel bad because you know for me i don't want to give up on what i love what i love is running i want to keep continuing to challenge myself to higher heights and for me i've always had trouble doing that because it's a matter of self-belief right and that's kind of what inspired my legal journey I, i asked myself many times can i be a lawyer now Am I going to be a total outlier going into law school at, you know, at over 30 years old? Like, are people going to look at me funny? Can I even, can I read legal cases? (laughs) Like, what am I going to do here? And I made it through that. And I made it through, you know, having gone through the loss of my daughter and the birth of my son. And I think that stands to maybe what I can handle. And after seeing what Rich Vole handled, um, I think that I could do so much more and I highly, highly recommend that book 
to anybody, like whether or not you're going through something particularly debilitating now, you don't have to, you could just listen to a story. And I feel like you could get a lot out of it. I think that there's just so much to take away from that. So just, I know it's kind of a long response, but I could talk about that book all day. And I feel like it's something that's totally worth reading or listening to if you have Audible. Absolutely. Finding Ultra Ritual. I'll repeat it again for everyone out there. I'm actually fortunate enough. I've listened to the Ritual podcast a couple of times. Nice. I listened to his episode with Peter Atia, which is very, very good. Similarly to his sort of story. Had me crying a little bit, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> but I have to ask, talking about podcasts, this is a new question, Tim. I haven't asked anyone this. Um, and it's going to sound weird at first, but just follow along. What in terms of like media and stuff, what do you what do you consume like podcasts, books, anything like that? So definitely podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. I often turn one on in the morning. My wife hates me, but <laughs> it's on. It just I don't know. It just helps me kind of get through my morning. I love listening to stuff. And, you know, f- podcasts are a good way for me to get news commentary as well as news. Generally, um, I also you know, I'll read headlines and certain articles from some newspapers. Like I try to get a mix of newspapers like the New York Times, Washington, uh, Washington Post, sometimes uh, the Wall Street Journal. Um, I listen to I listen to podcasts by independent uh, by independent operators, like guys who aren't tied to any sort of corporate funding, because I think that where their advantage is, is they're not tied to a particular agenda when you're relying on. Uh, when you're relying on small dollar donations, much like a politician, you can kind of go the route you want to go to without feeling beholden to somebody else's whims. And that's what I really like. I follow YouTube channels and podcasts from folks like that. I listen to a few legal podcasts like Strict Scrutiny, Amicus. I'm sure you're familiar with those. Um, the Ritual podcast. Uh, I listen to a podcast called We the People which is by the National Constitution Center. I'd recommend that. So they're a nonpartisan entity that they try to illuminate constitutional issues for both legal scholars and just lay people who are interested in them. It's hosted by Jeffrey Rosen, and he hosts two people to debate or discuss pertinent and salient constitutional issues. I'm learning Spanish now, so I try to listen to a couple of very basic Spanish podcasts, like the Duolingo Spanish podcast, uh, News in Slow Spanish. I like that, too. Um, You know, Factually with Adam Conover. I like that one a lot. Um, I just think he's funny, but I also think he's very intelligent. So I like the way that he discusses the news and really just any other social issue. Right. Um, I've started to get back into audiobooks. I hadn't for a little while, but you know, I renewed my Audible uh, subscription. So I think it's just a really easy way for me on my runs to listen to and absorb information. So I'd say yeah, it's a combination of podcasts, audiobooks, uh, you know, going onto my news apps and YouTube for sure. You know, I'll find some gems on YouTube almost <laughs> every day, stuff that I just haven't really, uh, haven't really thought about. You know, I try to Throwing some TED Talks here and there, too. There's some really good TED Talks. I listened to a good one by Sal Khan from Khan Academy. He was, it, it felt like kind of a sales pitch for the AI that he uses for Khan Academy. But 
because AI is kind of just taking over our world, I felt mm -hmm. like, well, how is it going to operate in the educational space? So I thought that little 16 minute pitch was pretty insightful. Although I, I have my misgivings about AI and I dread how it might take over the legal field. I, I seriously have no idea how it's going to be, but <laughs> worth learning about. Neither do I. Um, but you know, the, the time will tell at this point, I'm very, I'm very interested in it. I like, I like chat GPT. I play around with it all the time. <laughs> um, I know a lot of people at my school use it as well. Not to, not to rat on them. I'm not naming names. Um, Yo, tell them not to just tell them if they want to become <laughs> lawyers, tell them no, just <laughs> look up articles for how judges have reacted to briefs oh. that have been compiled through chat GPT. Tell them not to do it. It is not a good idea. I, I have seen those articles before. I, I I've seen the the sort of reactions and like, you know, the 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 um I know they miss citation a lot of stuff. They cite yeah. stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the case at all. Um I forgot to say before, I will run your marathon, by the way. I Yes. I, I've never <laughs> ran a marathon before. I would do um I need to do it. It's I gotta check it off my bucket list. Oh, that um, just made me really happy, buddy. Oh, did you I'm so down. You don't even know it. Um, <laughs> so we're we're getting down to the last couple of questions here. So you always you, you know you you work at if if when how, um you know, you're doing all the stuff in your life, listening to podcasts. But when you're not doing that, what does an ideal Friday night or Sunday morning look like for you? <laughs> well, I'm a parent of an infant, so. My nights are looking a little different than they were maybe a couple of years ago. But, uh, you know, after, you know, on a Friday night when, you know, my wife comes home from work, I probably just think about what I'm going to cook for dinner. I ask her. We debate about it because she's pretty <laughs> indecisive. So, you know, we go on we go on for that for a while. And then, um, you know, we enjoy a nice dinner together. We put our baby down. And then you know, probably just a movie. And right now it's December. So we're doing corny Christmas movies pretty much <laughs> every day. And uh, some are better than others. Uh, <laughs> but it's nice because we're really getting into this spirit. And I think that's the fun thing. I started decorating my apartment now. So yeah, that that is a typical Friday night. I have I have become an old man now. <laughs> we are basically beholden to our son. And that's okay for now. I think when he gets a little older, it'll be a little easier and maybe we can, you know, go out a little more. Uh, but a typical Friday night is pretty tame. Sometimes we'll have some folks over and, you know, we'll entertain, you know, have a couple of drinks and just relax, play some games. We do love a good game night. Mm -hmm. When we can have a game night, we will absolutely have a game night. And we love that. Uh, on a Sunday morning, what does a Sunday morning look for me? You know, maybe I'll wake up, I'll go for a run. I'll, uh, you know, just play with my son for a while and just enjoy the weather, man. I just enjoy the view. I just like to just keep it as relaxing as possible because I feel like Sunday is supposed to be relaxing. It's supposed to be a day where you're just really enjoying your time with your loved ones and just trying to put off Monday about as much as you can. <laughs> so I feel like the more I enjoy my Sundays from the very early morning, the more I won't hate Monday as much. I feel like that, that crappy Monday feeling comes when you don't make the most of your Sundays. 
because that time just goes away really fast. My recommendation would be just don't get too hungover on a Saturday. So <laughs> maybe you can wake up a little better on a Sunday and feel good and be a little more active. Maybe, you know, sometimes my wife and I will try a restaurant we haven't tried before. We'll, uh, you know, take our son to some local spots here in Long Island City. And that's really nice. You know, we love the park that we live by. So we try to keep it relaxing while also keeping it sort of like minimally active, get that fresh air, just get that bit of activity. Get the, keep those Sunday scarings away. My, my goodness. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying hard, man. (laughs) It's me as well. All of us out here. I I feel it. I I always try to keep the Sundays as relaxing as possible before Monday Mm -hmm. comes. Because, you know, once 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 you think about it, you're like, oh, it's eight o'clock now. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my goodness, Monday's coming soon. Um, oh, yeah. But final thing here, I do this every episode. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring lawyers, the current law students, maybe even the current lawyers or anyone really out there? <laughs> my words of wisdom are to stand by the choices that you make, because you know, speaking from experience, it is so easy to feel regret. It's so easy to feel doubt. It's so easy to be scared. And, and all of that is normal. It's, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to feel doubt. It's okay even to think about regret. Because, you know, especially if you're trying to pivot into a new field, it's going to be scary. You're gonna, you're gonna feel very out of your depth. But I think that you need to stand by your decisions. Because those feelings of doubt, those feelings of worry, they're not permanent. Once you figure out that you can do this, that you can be a lawyer, that you can do what you set out to do, you'll be fine. And you just have to believe in yourself. It is a very, very short life. Another cliche thing I'm throwing in here, but I think that life is too short to bury yourself under the stress of past decisions and anxiety and you know just everything else that anchors you down from having a great day a great week a great month you know eventually the bad times will pass i know there's some experience from having gone through the worst of them during law school but here i am now proud to call myself a lawyer i am proud that i was able to make a very difficult decision to quit my job i'm proud that i had a very supportive wife who didn't mind me giving all of that up and taking an absolute plunge, but stand by the decision you make. I promise you law school is a great decision. It is the best decision I've ever made. I believe that a legal education is something that everybody can benefit from. You learn about the world, you learn history, you learn how to interact. I think that it's something that I can't wait to teach my son. I'm going to try not to be a helicopter dad and make him be a lawyer, but I, I'm i not not going to encourage him. I will probably, yeah, I'll probably push him into that direction. Well, I couldn't, rem- I couldn't agree more. Hersha, thank you so much for coming on today. And for everyone else tuning in, thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next one.